Hello, and welcome to The Nutritionist. This is October, and that means it's the final edition of the year for The Nutritionist webinar. I'm Marianne Fezenden from Agricultural Modeling and Training Systems, and I serve as your American host. The purpose of these webinars is to provide access to technical seminars on a range of topics delivered by internationally recognized speakers. The series is a unique three-language presentation held in English, Portuguese, and Spanish. Noted ruminant nutritionists will present in English, hosted by AMTS in the United States, while Marcelo Hensremos from 3R Lab simultaneously translates into Portuguese for Brazil and Paula Torillo translates into Spanish for Argentina. There will be a post-presentation question and answer period during which listeners can submit questions through me or Marcelo and Paula. During the presentation, we will break twice to conduct four audience polls, the results of which will be discussed during the question and answer period. A complete recording of archived web webinars as well as the question and answer session for each will be available on the 3R and AMTS websites. Dr. John Gazer holds a PhD and professional animal science certification, serving also as a diplomat of the American College of Animal Sciences. Scientists, John Gazer grew up on his family farm, family's 1,000 cow dairy farm located near Plymouth, Wisconsin. After studying agronomy and dairy science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, John earned his master's degree in both plant breeding and genetics and dairy science, and then earned his PhD in dairy nutrition. During his tenure as a grad student at UW-Madison, Gazer focused on carbohydrate digestion and metabolism. Following his passion for helping the dairymen, Gazer moved on to a new opportunity, partnering with dairies around the U.S. to provide technical dairy and forage consultation. In his current role as Rock River Laboratories Director of Nutritional Research and Innovation, Gazer offers nutritionists and consultants counsel and expertise to complement analysis results and to solve, and solve challenges in the field. Through oversight and guidance of other staff in continued research, teaching as an adjunct professor at, the, at UW-Madison and offering insights and education to captive audience at various conferences and meetings, Gazer remains dedicated to continuing dairy dietary research to, pro to progress the industry. With that, I will turn the presentation over to Dr. Gazer and welcome you to the webinar. Are you all set? Yes, thank you, Marianne. Right. Marianne, can you hear me okay? I can hear you just great. Perfect. And you should be able to present now. All right. So here is my laser finder, which we'll use extensively. And thank you for a, a fantastic introduction. Don't know that I deserve all of that, but I appreciate that nonetheless. And uh, appreciate the opportunity to contribute to the, the series, the nutritionist series, with uh, a number of highly respected and notable uh, professors and nutritionists preceding, my, I guess, my contribution today, wrapping out the series for 2015. So what we will get into uh, this afternoon, this evening, and, and good afternoon, evening, good morning, depending on where you're at, we'll get into looking at what a 
feed and forage and nutrition analysis laboratory might be able to offer uh, you as a consultant or farm manager or owner or somebody looking to impact uh, primarily the dairy industry, but outside of nutrition formulation through AMTS uh, and computer software. One thing that I like to acknowledge and recognize, uh, despite some of the academic pedigrees and training that, that I've been fortunate enough to earn through my time at the University of Wisconsin and then some of the technical support work I've done in the field is reflecting back on my roots and, and my family, my dad and his two brothers, they are the third generation of Italian and German immigrants to the United States and they dairy on what is now a completed uh, 1200 cow dairy in eastern Wisconsin. The old or the original smaller dairy 60 cattle uh, was housed here and now this, the dairy has grown to support three families. My dad was a consultant for over 25 years and they never let me forget where the rubber hits the road, if you will, and uh, that things that I come forth with, we come forth with as an industry need to be practical and realistic and it be able to be implemented on the farm. So hopefully that's the angle and direction we move today in looking at some practical on-farm, in-the-field tools that you can all make use of that will improve precision and performance on-farm. Outside of practicality on-farm uh, with dairy markets, not only within the domestic U.S., but uh, in the global market now, understanding that we are not in uh, regional markets anymore. We're operating in a global market. I also think in terms of profitability beyond performance, so recognizing that tools not only need to be practical, but also need to help improve margins, performance. So I'd like to reflect on and bring in some figures and resources that I receive without any, I guess, not a, putting a plug in for, in this case, Margin Smart weekly newsletter, but these are some graphics that I get in biweekly emails that help me keep in tune with what the profitability forecast is for the foreseeable future. And so keeping that then as a backdrop and uh, I guess a mindset as to what we're working on and talking about through today's discussion, uh, with this particular figure, which I received from the Margin Smart team on a, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, or I guess just shy of, of two weeks ago, what we're seeing here is forecasted margins for dairy farms in the United States, upper Midwest, and over the next calendar year, so for September 2015, which is now just past us, but looking at uh, October 2015 and then forecasting out through August of 2016 based on futures prices of uh, class 3 milk or milk prices and then uh, corn prices and, and soybean meal forecasting what type of, of margins might be available for, for dairy farms and I guess the point I'd like to draw you to with this slide is that we uh, right here is break even and you can see for US dairy farms and I'm, I'm pretty certain this is the case globally profitability is hovering right around uh, a break even meaning that we need to implement any step we can and take 
every effort we can to help improve performance. Uh, maybe it's five or ten or fifteen cents per cow per day, but but help us to move into better profitability. So beyond then some of my roots and reflecting back on the reason we're all coming together today as far as improving dairy performance and profitability, let's start to hone in on the, the point today, looking at where does feed testing fit in the dairy and, and ruminant nutrition world. Of course, it fits within feed nutrition and AMTS formulation. That's a necessity with AMTS and the Cornell Nutrition and Modeling Group doing an ever better job of improving diet modeling and our ability to put more profitable diets together as well as having less impact on environment. We need to do a good job from a feed and forage analytic lab standpoint in giving you the parameters necessary to drive these accurate performance models. But beyond formulation is where we're going to focus more so today. Tools that we can look at on farm that are outside of the nutrition software. So we have some great techniques in a laboratory, but many are not going to be applicable to what we're going to discuss here today. What I've got depicted here are near-infrared analyses, both uh, here on the right-hand side in these two images, and then on the left-hand side, this is now uh, the near-infrared analysis application that is, is starting to be utilized out in the field. This moves more towards the on-farm analytic, whereas within the laboratory, we're utilizing very sensitive instruments uh, such as this. We have an instrument here that we measure uh, mineral content of feeds and forages with, but obviously this isn't going to be utilized on farm. And then with this image here, we are simulating rumen digestion hundreds of times over, but again, uh, this won't be necessarily utilized on farm as well. So what types of tools, what types of things can we all look at to consider nutrition beyond formulation. And I enjoy bringing this picture in uh, every now and then to help us remember that the cow will often tell us where performance opportunities are. And so this is a picture from, I believe, Australia. It might have been New Zealand from a colleague of mine when I had done some consulting work down south of the equator on the other side of the globe and uh, line feeding, so an electric fence here. And it's fairly clear where the forage quality was within this stack. Uh, the cows were selecting out the better quality forage and, and eating that. But from a feed and forage analysis standpoint, through formulation, we might not necessarily reflect what the cow is going after here. We might analyze the entire feed here, but clearly the, the cow knows what's different. So we're continually looking to hone in on, on what cows tell us, do a better job predicting performance, do a better job identifying opportunities, and ultimately agreeing with the cows and hopefully them with us. So the areas we will dig into with our discussion here today, we'll look at soil and plant nutrition. We'll briefly discuss variety, seed selection, how we may have some impact there from a laboratory standpoint, how some of the tools from a seed and forage testing lab may affect harvest decisions and management. We'll spend a bit more time talking about silage preservation, looking at forage silage health, 
how efficiently we preserved feed, the stability after preservation, we'll consider shrink. I won't mention uh, tools we use to, as far as buying feed outside of this slide here. We'll discuss anti-nutrition factors and then we'll move towards after we've formulated a sound diet but performance didn't follow as expected, why might not we have seen an expected response? What, what type of tools might we utilize to help us understand what might be happening on the farm? And then if, if time permits, we might discuss a bit of field research and, and farm trials and just tools that we can use to advance the, the field, advance research and experimentation, but outside of a university or a forage testing lab. So starting with soil plant nutrition, soil health, this is an area where I've learned a fair bit more about over the last three years with my colleague Dustin Sawyer helping contribute this slide and the next slide, an area, one of many I suppose that I'm quite deficient as far as my understanding, but recognizing that the nutrition we end up feeding to cattle it starts in the soil, whether it be a corn plant or soybeans or canola. The nutrients largely are derived from the soil from fertilization. In the case of legumes, there is some microbial nitrogen fixation from the atmosphere. But we often ignore this as ruminant nutritionists, the impact that soil health plant nutrition in the field is having on resulting forage quality. And so I think this is an area where there's quite a bit more to learn and an area where I'm looking to link the uh, agronomist, the soil science world a bit more with our, our ruminant nutrition world. Dustin has shown us an example here of just the impact of a potassium deficiency and what that has on grain yield here. So we might have, for example, with uh, adequate potassium, we may have 32 to 35 percent starch in our corn silage, whereas if we were deficient in potassium, uh, the silage might be 25 to 30 percent starch. And as nutritionists, we are, are stuck more or less with the resulting forage quality. But, but could we impact that beyond formulation, beyond seed selection at the soil and discuss this with some of our clients? Uh, I have to recommend soil testing, and this is an area where within the United States we have a tremendous opportunity to do better as far as understanding and being a bit more precise in how we are managing nutrition at the field level. And then I expect uh, from a global standpoint as well, I know our team is looking at opportunities in South America to begin to utilize some of the, these technologies to provide plants with better nutrition before they we even have opportunity to put then resulting feed in front of animals. So just briefly wanted to mention that, but this is certainly outside of formulation and an area that a, a, an analysis, uh, excuse me, analysis laboratory can help out and one that we often don't think about. Then after hopefully we have uh, healthy soil and healthy plants through the growing season, uh, we. I guess prior to that, actually, we need to make decisions on varieties and or hybrid selection. And this is an area uh, with a bit of my plant breeding background. I've, I've understood some of the opportunities we've had in, in selecting different varieties, whether it be legumes or grasses and, or uh, sorghum sedans, and, and then also selecting different hybrids, primarily corn, to 
give us the best opportunity for uh, fantastic forage quality. And what I'll say briefly, we could spend uh, an hour or several hours talking about hybrid selection, but I, I, I think the point I'd like to drive home today is that fiber and starch content and plant quality have been well documented as heritable traits, very similar to uh, how milk production potential or feet and legs would be heritable in a, uh, an animal breeding program in a reproduction program, we can have substantial impacts on resulting forage quality with uh, genetic selection and by picking the right hybrids. So uh, where I become involved from and where we may have some impact in selecting hybrids uh, is to either utilize seed company provided information or setting up farm plots, doing evaluation on the farm level, understanding that genetics often interacts with the, the soil conditions. And so by utilizing forage testing, uh, by also weighing the, the crop out of the field to get an estimate of yield, we can then combine that information from a farm with a seed brochure, with other university information, uh, combining resources, and then make best decisions as to what hybrids, what varieties make sense for the clients that, that we're consulting for. I think we also are going to have potential to not only select on fiber and starch content. Uh, we've actually been selecting on starch content for over 100 years as, as plant breeders have been selecting for greater and greater grain yields. But as we've recognized now opportunity for different carbohydrate digestion potential, there is substantial opportunity to select for better fiber digestibility, better fiber, um, sorry, starch digestibility with years to come. The pictures I've presented here uh, on the bottom here, this is an example of three different uh, hybrids, I guess, that have different starch characteristics. And uh, briefly, the, the yellow darker starch here, this is highly vitreous. This is starch encased in a, a protein matrix or protein cage. The more dark yellow we see here, the less digestible within the rumen. You can see a clear difference between the less vitreous, the more flowery corn here, and then the more flinty corn here. These will likely then have 20 to 30% difference in ruminal availability. This is heritable. Uh, similar in concept, but now looking at ground sources, these are two different uh, corn grains, both ground through a four millimeter, but you can see that the corn grains reacted differently to the grinding process. This could be uh, likened to a chewing process that a cow might be doing, and you can just visually see the difference here. That That is heritable. So by making some nutritional measurements, by making some quality measurements, and then reflecting back on, on what the genetic source was we were dealing with, we can influence then future quality. Now we'll pause, and I, I think it's time for a poll. Yes, it is. I am going to take control from you. And I will open the polling center. Remember that after you, after I open this, you will have a limited amount of time to answer these. And it doesn't make it go faster if you don't answer. So um, we'll start with poll one. I'm going to open it. It's only going to take a minute. So if you go ahead and click when that's open. If I put 100 tons of dry matter into the silo, I plan to feed out A, 100 tons, B, less, a little bit 
more than 95 tons, C, more than 90 tons, D, 80 tons, or E, I really don't know. So if you'll finish up your answers, and I will close the poll as soon as I feel that enough people have answered. Okay, I'm going to close the poll. And now we can move on to the second poll. And that second poll, if as I open it, I have two identical diets, the same forages, forage to concentrate ratio, crude protein, ether extract, NDF, and starch. A, they will result in the same milk production. B, if intake is the same, milk production is the same. C, digestibility of nutrients, especially NDF and starch, will make a big difference. D, digestibility of nutrients, especially NDF and starch, will make a minor difference. Or E, I do not know. So if you'll take the time to respond. And I'm going to give you 10 more seconds, then I'll close that poll. Okay. All right. So we will go back to the presentation. We'll be interrupting at another point for two more polls, and then the poll discussion will happen during the question and answer period. So I am going to progress ahead for the next step and turn over the control. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So. I appreciate the poll questions, and the first of the two, you may not have an idea as to how we might estimate how many tons we'll actually feed out. I hope we get into some of that and, and help give you some idea there. And then the second of the two poll questions, I, I hope we're all thinking the same, but we'll find out. So after looking at, as we follow forage quality from the soil to then making a, a seed selection and planting that, and then getting to the point where we harvest a crop. There are a number of different factors we can influence and make some assessments at harvest to help us do the best job to maximize forage quality and silage health. So uh, simply looking at dry matter will help us time uh, crop maturity at the optimal level. So from a corn silage standpoint, having a dry matter content of about 30, <coughs> excuse me, 35% will optimize uh, starch and fiber quality in addition to content. Measuring dry matter can also help us uh, time the cut relative to maturity. Beyond dry matter, utilizing scissor clip analyses, so walking to a field uh, of standing green crop typically a, a legume, but possibly grass, pasture, uh, maybe a, a sorghum sudan, grass-type crop, we can make assessments in the field as to what the nutritional quality is of the standing crop. And depending on where that's at with research, the, giving us an idea of how the crop will mature each day, that can help us plan our cut timing as far as uh, day of the week, uh, whether we should cut today or whether we should wait several days out. So an example of this might be if we measure uh, plant quality, let's say legume quality in a standing field, 
at 25% protein, 35 or even 32% NDF. I might have an idea that the NDF content will increase one unit each day, so I can then use that nutritional measurement of the crop standing in the field to help me plan that I should cut the crop in three to four days to have a desired nutritional content of 40% NDF. So that's what I mean right there. Cut height, uh, this is in regards to corn silage quality. So in years where the corn silage crop, about 50% of the resulting forage quality is due to genetics. The other 50% is due to the environment that the crop is grown in, particularly with corn and corn silage. If we have a year where we have a, uh, a tremendous growing environment as far as yield, but the forage quality is not so good, we could assess that with a uh, forage analysis measurement of the, the feed standing in the field, and that also might give us an indication as to whether or not we should cut the crop at a normal height or whether we should cut the corn silage crop at, at maybe uh, a half meter or greater up in the air, leaving the less digestible portion of the stalk down on the ground and actually not bringing that into the silo. Then we can make assessments uh, when the crop is, is being harvested. If we have a kernel processor, are we adequately processing the, the corn grain within the silage. I will, I'll show you a visual representation of something we can do quickly in the field, but we also have kernel processing measurements, which I'll reflect on. And then we can also, and this is an area we've been investigating more recently, when we preserve a crop through ensiling, we hope that it's an ideal fermentation, an ideal preservation, but we're recognizing more that soil-borne yeast, mold, other bacteria, potentially clostridium. We don't necessarily understand the level and or the impact that these may have on the resulting silage preservation and ultimately silage health and possibly affect on animal performance. So these are some areas we can look at at the time of harvest to then affect uh, what we're gonna do at that time and, and then the crop we'll be dealing with going forward. As far as corn silage processing score, so that's what the CSPS stands for here, or kernel processing score, KPS, these two terms are, are sort of used as the same. Prior to a laboratory analysis, a, a quick tool that can be utilized in the field, particularly with a fresh, unfermented, chopped corn, is to float a, say, a kilo of feed in maybe uh, a few liters of water and the grain will separate from the plant or the stover fraction. And then, the, so the stover and the fibrous fraction floats up on the top of the water. Then it can be quickly removed with a hand and then the resulting grain will be left within the, the water slurry. Uh, this can be run through then a screen or just dumped out on the ground and we can get a pretty quick visual assessment as to how well processed the corn grain is. So this isn't anything that involves a laboratory but allows us to make pretty quick and effective decisions in the field. The two pictures I have here are examples. On the left, the dairy had just started processing with a brand new kernel processor but ran the, the quick float test on farm and found uh, some whole kernels and the processing was, was not nearly as well as it should have been. Then on the right-hand side, the uh, dairy manager was able to convince the cutter to make some adjustments and then did the same on-farm float test and then you can see the resulting grain processing quality. So very impactful. Uh, this will then have this corn grain as part of the silage to feed out through the, the following year 
and uh, likely much better starch digestibility. Beyond the float test, then the laboratory can offer the kernel processing score. So with a, a laboratory measurement, we dry the feed and then we separate out the corn grain. So a similar concept to what we've done here with water, but unfortunately this, this float test does not work on fermented forages. The, it's difficult to separate the grain and the stover. So at the laboratory level, and this was developed by Dr. Dave Mertens a number of years ago uh, with, with one of his graduate students, we're able to dry the grain and, and then do a particle size distribution and we can look at the percent of starch that passes through a 4.5 or a millimeter, it's either 4 or 4.5 millimeter screen, basically how well the, the starch is processed, how, how finely ground it is by either the chopper or the chopper with a kernel processor. In, in this case, the aim is to have greater than 70%, uh, so this range here, 15 to 100, is the percent of starch that passes that screen. The aim is to have greater than 70%. And so you can see here over the last two crop years, uh, 2013 crop and then 2014 crop, through our Rock River Laboratory, and this represents the continental United States, uh, several thousand samples plotted out on this grid here. You can see we've improved over time, but yet we still have substantial variation. So either on the fly at harvest or post-harvest, we can make some of these assessments to then help us plan going into the future and, and give us an idea on where we might be able to capture more energy from the grain portion of corn silage. Beyond some of the harvest management factors, I've spent a fair bit of time learning more about silage preservation over the last five to eight years. I wasn't taught through the university much about this facet of animal nutrition, but it's one where I've seen tremendous opportunity from California uh, to New York, uh, from Australia to Brazil. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to be on farm and offer support and, and truly learn. There, I think, are a number of different areas we can look at in silage preservation. Uh, there can be substantial shrink, which we'll discuss here. There's been work from Peter Robinson uh, and others looking at environmental impact of fermented silages. And then after the preservation stage, there's also a consideration as to how stable the crop is when it's opened back up, re-exposed to air, and then fed to animals. The picture on the bottom here, I've got, uh, I think if I would ask any of you out there how long you would think forage could be stable, I might get answers back from maybe one year to several years. But this is, was an interesting forage sample that I received from one of my uh, former colleagues where uh, during a period of low feed inventories, this dairy had reached a point in his silo where he had feed that was over 20 years old that he remembered uh, storing with, with some, for some reason he remembered well. But this was feed from uh, 1988 that we received at Rock River Laboratory then in 2013. And, and uh, it was, in my mind, as good as uh, a year after it was in style. But it, it's quite amazing how if we do a good job in, in silage preservation, how that forage can remain stable. But now back to the poll question and thinking about harvesting feed and feeding out feed. One thing I also like to do beyond some of the analytic measurements we make is think about results we get, but in different terms, some that are a bit more concrete. 
maybe a little bit more practical for the consultants and, and the industry and the farms we're working with. So while we may talk and we will talk in terms of fermentation shrink, dry matter losses, ultimately what we're trying to do is for every 100 ton of feed harvested from the field, we would ideally want to be able to feed out 100 ton. I can tell you based on some of the scientific literature and some of the work I've done recently, which we will get into here within the next slide or two, in the best case scenario, we're only feeding, or we are feeding out about 98 ton per every 100 harvested. There are some cases where opportunity exists where we're feeding out less than 75 ton for every 100 ton harvested from the field. So there's a cost associated to uh, fertilizing for, purchasing seed for, planting, and harvesting 100 ton, and then if only 75 ton are actually being fed out, it just gets to be a substantial economic cost to the dairy. So now focusing in on preservation shrink and talking about dry matter loss, and I look forward to questions and discussion in this area and admittedly have quite a bit to learn, but when we look at where losses can occur, if, if we're feeding out less than 75 ton of feed for every 100 ton harvested, what what are we losing? What sort of losses are we incurring? And what I've learned is we're actually we're not losing the uh, a ton of forage as it was harvested, but rather we're losing water soluble carbohydrates. We're losing sugar and starch that ultimately must be then replaced with corn or similarly uh, similar energy ingredients within AMTS uh, and in the nutrition software to bring then the the corn silage or the diet back to an energy level. And uh, if, if we end up with a situation where we have 3% shrink or 5% shrink, meaning we're feeding 97 ton or 95 ton or 90 ton out of every 100 ton harvested, uh, rather than talk in percent shrink, I like to equate that then back to bushels of corn. And so I'm, I'm telling you this on the front end of then showing you a couple different tools how, that we'll have at our fingertips to be able to estimate shrink a bit more concretely. What I can tell you is every 3% shrink within a ton of corn silage corresponds to a half bushel of corn. And so a, a bushel then being a, an English unit, but one that's pretty readily understood throughout the, the industry and on the farm level. So uh, talking in terms of bushels of corn rather than abstract dry matter losses can help drive points home out in the field. As far as where shrink happens, and possibly I should have had this slide uh, one or two spots earlier, but there can be several areas that we lose feed between the field and then where we are resulting in feed out in front of cows. Obviously, if we're harvesting 100 ton and we're feeding out 75 ton, we lost 25 ton of feed somewhere in the process, but the forage testing laboratory and some research that I've been part of and published recently have focused in really on the fermentation process. We can lose feed at harvest as far as just a shrink of feed not chopped, not collected in wagons, brought into the silo. We can also lose feed after ensiling. In this case, this is instable feed or feed that needs to be discarded. It's a little bit tougher to estimate these two facets of, of dry matter loss, but we're getting better at estimating fermentation losses in between uh, when the crop is anaerobically sealed 
and then open back up two feet out. And so we'll focus then in on fermentation shrink and discuss a few tools that we then now have at our fingertips to help us quantify and eventually put some economics to opportunity here. I'll briefly talk about an approach that I took over the past couple years and, and have a published paper now behind in Professional Animal Scientist. Uh, I, along with my colleague Courtney Hoyer and, and Peter Crump at the University of Wisconsin, we undertook an effort to review uh, over 40 studies with a number of different treatments that were evaluating various facets in relation to forage dry matter loss. We then did a uh, Professor St. Pierre type statistical analyses through a meta-analyses and ultimately related fermentation measurements to dry matter losses. A bit more of background, what we found was forage dry matter, pH, lactic acid, acetic acid, forage type, fermentation length, and then preservative treatment all had an impact on resulting dry matter losses and fermentation shrink. As consultants, we typically look at pH, lactic acid, acetic acid, total acids, maybe butyric, in subjectively assessing, uh, I guess, how effectively we preserved feed. But we were able to look at these metrics and then through a, a meta-analysis approach come up with a bit more of an objective measurement uh, with the resulting equation that we can then apply to a fermentation analysis with a, with a forage analysis. So this is something that we now have in 2015 that we didn't have prior. We can, through making a, just that simple forage analysis on farm, we can then apply this published equation and get an estimate of what the fermentation shrink was, what percent of dry matter we lost. And I, I'm showing you now data from several thousand wet chemistry fermentation analyses on, on various feed types, legumes, mixed forages, grass and legume grasses, corn silages, and then small grains, uh, Rockerville laboratory data. And you can see here the average and then median dry matter losses, again, specifically in that fermentation phase of potential forage shrink, are somewhere between 3 and 4%, meaning that if we harvested 100 ton and stored 100 ton in the silo, on average we were feeding 96 to 97 ton out. We then can apply uh, some goals as to where we can be, but then we could also see, unfortunately, some of the, the lower end and some of the, the massive opportunities out as far as very poor, poorly preserved forages. And so I'm showing you this again to hopefully give you an idea of, of a way that we can more objectively quantify shrink and something that's currently available. Beyond then the, the forage preservation process and assessing shrink, another area that I get into on farm routinely is looking at anti-nutrition. And, and this might not make sense at face value, but I consider anti-nutrition or anti-nutritional measures to be anything that detracts from uh, the nutritional characteristics of, of the forage or the TMR. We may have a very nutritious TMR put forth in front of cattle, but if, if for whatever reason they're not able to capture all the, the nutrients, all the uh, not all the energy, there, there may be something anti-nutritional taking place. So with this uh, picture here, there's clearly some potential anti-nutrition facets, uh, some clear feed shrink and losses. You can see some 
white potential mold, maybe some yeast growth within this hay silage. This is a, a corn silage pit or pile, and here you can see on farm a, a red line. This may correspond to deteriorated feed, potentially some mold, maybe some other anti-nutritional facets of this feed. These are the types of things I'm looking at when I use the anti-nutrition term. From a laboratory standpoint, we can help quantify these in looking at mold levels and looking at yeast levels. Mycotoxins also will fall under this umbrella. Uh, clostridium uh, spore counts could potentially fall under this umbrella. And I'll, I'll give you some benchmarks then to consider in the next couple slides. So with mold and yeast being some of the first anti-nutritional factors I evaluate on farm, I've took liberty to, with Professor Lon Whitlow, as well as uh, a wealth of database information from our lab, come up with some goals and guidelines. Uh, I, I didn't find these readily available uh, throughout the, the literature or out available on the web, but you can see uh, I'm recommending we have less than a thousand uh, colony forming unit counts per gram of forage in most cases of both mold and yeast for the various feeds. From a TMR standpoint, in some cases we're feeding a, a live yeast, uh, so we don't want to necessarily, the lab will measure live yeast, but we don't often see zero yeast counts in, in TMR. But these can be, again, some on-farm things we can look at outside of formulation, looking at anti-nutrition. Beyond benchmarks, here is what we've seen recently over the past several months uh, in corn silages, specifically looking at mold and yeast trends, uh, several hundred to potentially even thousand analyses recently from across the U.S. The red line represents mold counts, uh, and these are log transformed. So on the y-axis here, we're between a log of, of four and a five. And then the blue uh, trend line here, this represents yeast counts. And so recently we've seen increasing levels of both yeast and mold in corn silage submitted for analysis. Not exactly sure why this is the case, but something that's acting beyond the formulated diet that we need to consider. Beyond yeast and mold, so yeast has been shown by Professor Kung to interact within the rumen, disrupt fiber digestion, uh, potentially disrupt fatty acid metabolism, maybe to milk fat depression. Beyond that, though, uh, mycotoxins have been much more clearly documented to impact uh, animal health and performance. And so I, I will just offer some benchmarks that have been uh, developed, again, with Professor Whitlow and uh, surveys over, or I guess I surveyed uh, a few different sources of literature finding, the I guess, the lowest documented level of mycotoxin that has been shown to impact animal performance. So these are slightly different as well from those you might find out within the industry. But both mold, yeast, and mycotoxin guidelines tend to be a little bit more difficult to come by. So that's why I'm offering these here today. Now we'll pause for our second poll. Okay, thank you. I like to hear the kids in the background, by the way. 
<laughs> it's kind of nice. Appreciate you right. bearing with me. Well, it's, it's absolutely no problem with that. Okay, we're going to open the third poll, and um, I will read this as we open it. So, if I feed 30 kilograms, and that's 66 pounds of corn silage, A, a change in dry matter will not affect profit. B, a change in dry matter will affect I have to make sure that this is working because nobody's answering. Yeah, it should be. They need to start answering. Um, okay, sorry. B, a change in dry matter will affect profit just a bit. C, we do a dry matter sample when we open the silo and use that number. D, we try to do a dry matter sample on a daily basis to correct the diet. And E, I do not do dry matters. I do not have the time. Okay, I'll give you a few more seconds to complete the answers. And I'm going to close the poll. It's processing this time. It didn't process the last two times, so I'm not sure why. But anyway. All right. And then the fourth poll, which I'll open in a moment, is my absolute favorite poll. So of all the polls I've done, I love this poll. So it says, I formulate a diet for 40 kilograms or 88 pounds, and the cows are producing 35 kilograms or 77 pounds. What is the matter? A, the cows must be sick. B, the farm crew is not feeding them right. C, the diets are not being mixed well. D, the nutrients, especially forages, must have different composition from what I used in my software, and E, we need to select better bowls. So I'll let this one stay open a little bit longer. I really like all the choices in this one, especially select better bowls. Okay, I'm going to close this poll. And while that processes, we'll... Um, come back to these polls as a discussion topic later during the question and answer period. And Marcelo from Brazil and um, Dr. Gazer will discuss the results based on the three countries. So now I am going to turn the presentation back over to Dr. Gazer. He's going to finish it out and then we'll talk about the polls later. All right. So, yeah, thank you for bearing with me as I've got my future animal nutritionist with me here in the background, keeping me company as I lead the webinar from home this afternoon. But when we look at now, we have a, a, a properly formulated diet, animal performance yet doesn't meet expectation, and this is an area where I then get involved, and I'm sure you might as well as a supporting consultant. Why aren't we seeing the performance we want? Ultimately. It has to do with the cattle are not deriving ener the energy from the diet that we have forecast or have formulated there to be. And so why might that not be happening? There are some things we can look at uh, and consider beyond formulation then to, to look at what we're getting done. So the, the first then in relation to the, the question or the poll on dry matter, 
I, this is something I think we take for granted, and, and as a, I guess a nutritionist focusing through graduate school on, on carbohydrate metabolism and nutrient digestion, I've I sort of glossed over the fact that we take dry matter for granted. But I'm going to show a couple graphs now that demonstrate uh, nutrient and dry matter variability for a, a commercial dairy in, in eastern Wisconsin that I've worked with about 1,200 head and just demonstrating some variation that we see on farm. And as far as determining dry matter itself, that's actually been debated as well, a number of different techniques utilizing to, to determine dry matter. And so here, this may be understandable if we were feeding different hay crops where there were different moisture levels or dry matters within the silo, but this is a dairy that was doing dry matter determination on a, a weekly basis, and this is actually a corn silage crop. And so we see a general trend of increasing moisture as the, the feed-out year then carried forth. So September of 2013 is here. This would have been shortly after the crop was harvested. And uh, in this case, the dairy fed out some of the mature, more mature feed first. So they, they didn't actually start feeding the first crop that they harvested. Rather, they they started feeding out the last crop they harvested. And then as the dairy fed through the 14,000 ton of corn silage, you can see it progressively got wetter, which is logical. But some of the in, something interesting to note is just the wide variation in dry matter. So again, we take this for granted, but this will have an impact on uh, not only feed availability as far as potentially an empty bunk, making sure we have feed in front of cows for 24 hours a day, but it can also have hidden impact on income over feed costs and, and profitability. So cows will typically eat to a consistent uh, intake, to a consistent amount of, of dry feed each day, but the ratio of the dry feed might not be exactly as we have forecast. So there's, there is TMR management software uh, more and more readily used on farm that we can change cow numbers and we can increase feeding uh, amounts so that we consistently keep cows fed each day, which is fantastic. It, it's a, a cardinal sin of, of, I guess, feeders to, to have empty bunk. But there can be cases where we ha still have feed in front of cows but it's not the correct ratio of feed. So in this case, uh, we have formulated for a 35% dry matter of corn silage, but the dry matter had changed to a 32% corn silage. We still have feed in front of cows at 53 pounds of dry matter intake in both cases, but you can see then a resulting change uh, in chain, uh, um, in the cost of the diet because the resulting dry matter that is not in the diet because of corn silage is, is made up of, of alfalfa, corn, and protein, and mineral, and that comes down to uh, $0.26, I'm sorry, 26 cents per cow per day increase in feed costs, uh, $8.27 for this diet as consumed at 53 pounds versus $8.01 as formulated, and this was in 2014 when feed costs were a bit higher than they are now. Simple dry matter. Beyond dry matter, and again, we talk quite a bit about digestibility. That was the focus of my doctorate work, like I mentioned before, and that seems to be a hot topic in nutrition, but are the nutrients even there? So things such as protein, carbohydrates, fat, ash content in feedstuffs. In general, we do a, a pretty good job of getting one, two, maybe three nutritional measures on a, a silo, and I use the term silo fairly liberally, meaning that I consider a, a large pit like this a silo as well as a, ba a bag of forage, I consider that a silo, or even an upright silo, as you 
may be familiar with in the United States. But I'll come back to a, a similar plot now on that same farm that's a bit more aggressive also in, in sampling their nutrition measures as well as their dry matter. And this is also uh, corn silage that was analyzed by this dairy over the same feed-out year. So this would be 2012 corn silage that was then fed out in uh, September 2013 through July of 2014. And so while, while dry matter varied considerably, starch content in that crop also varied considerably. And so I, I, I guess what I'm challenging us all to think about is how often are we sampling our forages if, if we're out on farm consulting every three weeks, every four weeks, do we take a, a sample, do we take a nutritional measurement each time, uh, or, or maybe should we think about sampling a bit more frequently. The, this represented a two-week sampling protocol. This dairy made the decision that based upon some of the variation they were observing, they were going to consistently move forward with a two-week sampling protocol and then use a rolling average such as this line presented here to do formulation off of. This is building off of what Professor Weiss, St. Pierre at, at Ohio State have, have done a lot of work in looking at. So you can see a variation between 32% starch and 21% starch in that same 14,000 ton of feed. And I think it's one way to present the data such as this, but a way that I, I had presented this information to this farm was to consider for every 5% starch change in the corn silage, that equated to one pound or a half kilo of corn then that, that we needed to either add into or subtract from the diet. So again, just another way to look at taking a nutritional measure, but putting it in, in terms that may be a bit more concrete for the dairy to understand. Continuing forth with thinking about different ways to express nutrition information from a, a forage analysis, I also have used uh, an analogy looking at 20 ton per acre corn silage, which is fairly average for uh, many areas of the United States, depending on, on growing conditions. If this crop yields 35% starch, there are actually 100 bushel of corn within that crop. If, for example, we only achieve 25% starch because of poor harvest management, maybe we didn't select the right genetics, maybe the soil fertility or soil health wasn't where it, it could have been, all things that we can manage and say, for example, we only had 25 or 30% starch, we may be actually only feeding out 70 bushel corn silage. So again, just a different way to expl express nutrition information that, that may help us have some impact on farm. And we haven't even begun to, to discuss digestibility and what impact that might have. So think about how many bushels of corn we're actually feeding, not through the TMR, or I'm sorry, not through the grain, but through the corn silage itself. Beyond the farm-grown feeds and, and forages, I guess this could have been another poll question we, we could have offered up, but typically 50% of each of the diet is put together with forages, the other 50% is purchase feed in some way, shape, or form. It might be on-farm corn coupled with protein, other purchase feed. But I would think that this ratio would then be a little bit closer to 50% forages and 50% concentrate analyzed through a feed testing laboratory in our Rock River database here. We have over 100,000 feed samples analyzed over the past uh, year and what I did was I broke out and looked at of all the 100,000 plus feed analyses, 
how many were forages and how many were concentrates. And so I'll pause here for a second and just ask you to think in your mind, what do you think the ratio was of forage to concentrate? And are we doing a good job of, of truly understanding what the fiber content, what the protein content, what the starch content of that diet really is? I'll end my quick poll and I'll tell you that nearly 85% of all the feeds submitted by consultants by farms were forages. In the case of concentrates, not even 20% of these uh, feeds submitted to Rockwell Laboratory were concentrates. And what, what this means is I don't think we truly know what some of the canola, what some of the soybean meal, what some of the, the wheat mids, soy hulls, uh, corn grain for that matter, um, other, other ingredients we're bringing into diet that AMTS has a, a fantastic feed library as far as a base starting point, but are these feeds truly what we think they are? And here I can present to you just a quick visual assessment of how different purchase or commodity feeds can be. So in this case, these were distiller's grains, but you can pretty quickly visually see all of these would be characterized exactly the same if we were to utilize feed library information, but you can see very dark color here, with the moderate particle size, fine particle size, changes in color throughout, uh, maybe higher fat content with these. Challenging all of you to again think about, do we really know what the crude protein, NDF, fat, starch in the other half of the diet, the purchase feed are. And I can tell you from my interaction and from what I see in, in this figure here, we have a lot of opportunity here. Strictly on just nutrient content. And then the other half of the diet, uh, or I guess the, the diet in totality and where we spend a lot of time or we have over the last several years in looking at nutrient digestibility outside of the forage analyses that we'll use for formulation, there are a couple tools that we can utilize on farm to then give us an assessment as to why cows might not be responding as we think they should be. The nutrients may indeed be there. We've verified, we've done uh, concentrate commodity testing, we've done forage testing, but yet we're still not getting the performance we expect. If we sift and work through and wash through manure and we see uh, fecal washouts that look like this, whole grain, quite a bit of whole grain, some whole fiber. This gives us an indication. This can be a nice on-farm tool to use and one that I'd actually highly recommend that doesn't involve a testing lab. Just go out, sample some feces, wash these with water, and take a visual assessment. The fecal particles should be, there should be very little corn grain and, and the fiber particles, there will always be fiber there, but it should be very fine, uh, spindly almost like a, a, a fine needle. That's what the fiber should look like. In a case like this, there is great opportunity for better nutrient digestion on farm. But in every, nearly every case I get an opportunity to support on farm, I will start here before even looking at any uh, forage TMR nutritional analyses. I'll look at what the cows are digesting or rather what they're not digesting. As far as factors affecting digestion and when we utilize either uh, a fecal washout or one of the tools I'll, I'll discuss here just in a minute, some things that we should then consider relating to digestion. Obviously, I've discussed the seed and genetics, the dry matter content in relation to crop maturity. If, if the corn silage, for example, was 40% dry matter, that crop maturity was well beyond uh, ideal, and, and so then our fiber digestibility, our starch digestibility is likely less than ideal. Growing environment does have a big impact. I mentioned that. 
uh, fermentation and preservation can also have a, a sizable impact on, on digestion. I think more so from an anti-nutrition standpoint, if we have mold, yeast, or, or the silage health just isn't what it could be, that can detract then from, from rumen metabolism, rumen digestion. Obviously, crop and feed processing, uh, corn grain, grind size, mean particle size, the particle size distribution, things that we can assess through a laboratory, uh, particle size in relation to starch digestion is has been well documented, uh, whereas with fiber, it's, it's not as, as clear as far as the, the fiber particle size, physically effective NDF and the impact on, on fiber digestion, but the finer we grind corn or finer we process corn, we're going to get better digestion. Uh, there are also well-known interactions within the rumen as far as between protein and fiber, protein and starch, just synergisms that can take place outside of the, the forage analysis itself. And then other animal factors that relate to how long the feed is within the rumen as far as passage rate. And, and so if we're not getting the digestion, such as the picture here, a question I might ask would be, what's the dry matter intake of the pen? Uh, is there a reason to believe that cows are actually eating more? Our rumen retention time is less. Maybe our feed conversion efficiency has dropped off substantially. Maybe the feed's just flowing through cows faster for whatever reason. From a tool and utility standpoint, there are a few different tools that can be utilized uh, then from the farm through the laboratory. One being a, a quick fecal starch, there's then the uh, in vivo TMR digestion measurement, uh, sort of trade name TMRD, but uh, documented by a, a JDS publication I contributed to back in 2012. We do have some rumen in situ or rumen in vitro TMR uh, controlled digestion uh, approaches we can take to, to get an idea of what the nutritive quality, energetic quality of the TMR should be. Uh, we, I, I will see, I, I doubt I'll mention much about TT and DFD or in vitro intestinal digestion, but I, I do want to make note of the fecal starch and then the TMRD concepts because these are, are very good tools giving us an indication of what's happening on farm. So uh, I'll start with fecal starch and then uh, the predicted total track starch digestibility, which is directly related to this. Here I've, I've plotted out dating back to 2012 and now uh, up until last week, I guess, in 2015. This is strictly the, the amount of starch within feces uh, expressed as a percent of dry matter. So between 0% and 25% of the feces uh, being starch. And so obviously starch that's passing through the cow is, is not being digested, not being utilized for uh, milk or meat. And the aim here is to have less than 2% of fecal dry matter be starch. But you can see the quantity of dots above this 2% line, and then you can see the trend line here. Ideally, this would be decreasing over time, and, and we would have many, many more samples and observations below this 2% threshold, but a lot of opportunity yet here. So this would be one of the first tools I, I utilize and take back from the farm to the laboratory to, to get an idea of what's happening. Directly predicted then from that fecal starch is total tract starch digestibility. Uh, Professor Jimmy Ferguson uh, first published an equation, I, I guess he didn't publish an equation, but uh, made popular an equation and then uh, Shane Ferdine in, in his work with uh, Randy Shaver's group published a peer-reviewed 
public, uh, I'm sorry, equation predicting total track starch digestibility or relating total track starch digestibility to fecal starch and, and similar concepts here to the previous slide. So this again in a bit more concrete terms, just looking at out of every uh, pound of corn or 10 pounds of, or 10 kilos of corn put in front of cows, what are we actually utilizing? We want to be better than 98% through the cow and total track. And, and so every dot, every sample, every farm below this line opportunity to do better, opportunity for improved performance, reduced feed cost, things along those lines. And then the, uh, I guess the last digestion tool that I'll make mention of as we're now a little bit beyond an hour would be the in vivo digestion tool. So this is something that is a uh, is similar in concept to a university scale uh, research trial or research project, but where we're utilizing uh, a little bit more practical laboratory approach to sample the TMR and then the feces uh, from a pen of cattle to get an idea of, of what in vivo or true nutrient or apparent nutrient digestion was. And this approach, we take a, a TMR from the farm, ideally one that hasn't been too much disturbed, and then the laboratory, our team can measure nutrient content and then an indigestible marker, UNDF actually, and then we also take fecal samples from the farm or feedlot, ideally at least 10 samples uh, that would span different manure fecal scores. Uh, more samples are better. We blend those together. And then the laboratory also measures nutrient content and this indigestible marker. And by nutrient content, I mean protein, fiber, fat, ash, things along those lines. And then we can uh, incorporate through the apparent digestion calculation, again, that's identical to what universities are utilizing, we can calculate total track nutrient digestion. And this is a great tool to look, one, at the total diet, sort of the TDN, and then also break down what cows, high-performing cows, are actually utilizing in terms of carbohydrates, fiber, and starch. And we can even get a peek at, at protein and fat, although those, those are a bit more difficult to comprehend. But this is a tool I have uh, both directly utilized on farm and then been in support of a number of groups that have identified opportunities where a diet was formulated in one fashion, but yet performance wasn't meeting uh, expectations. And so we were able to hone in on, on exactly what was going on or get a better idea of what was going on. As far then as what some of these in vivo digestion results look like or what you might expect, in, I guess, last year, prior to a, uh, a four-state nutrition conference uh, seminar I led and then uh, the conference proceedings, I spent some time pouring through literature and, and came up with a survey or a summary of published meta-analyses looking at what in vivo TMR fiber and starch digestion measurements are. And so utilizing this type of approach where we make in vivo measurements but then being able to benchmark. So. In reality, within the rumen, uh, fiber and starch are being utilized at a 42% and, and about 60% of the respective nutrients. And then from a total track standpoint, about 49% fiber digestion and then over 90% starch digestion. So that was interesting in itself, but I think where future opportunities lie is then in the range around these averages, uh, over 20 units of range, both above and below the 42% of fiber utilized, and then from a starch standpoint, uh, and I'll give Tom Taluki some credit for challenging myself and our team to hone in a little bit more on, on starch metabolism and looking at what ruminal starch digestion is doing or isn't doing within high-performing cattle. 
30 units of range. So on average, TMR starch digestion may be 60 to 70%, but there can be situations, and I know in support of Marcelo and our team in Brazil, with some very flinty corns, we've seen some situations, unfortunately, where we've probably been well below this 60% rumen starch digestion. Maybe we've been closer to 30 or 40% rumen starch digestion. Uh, but then there can be better situations where we have 70 to 80 or maybe even 90% where that may be uh, a factor in relation to milk fat depression where we just have such rapidly fermentable starch it's then negatively impacting other nutritional uh, metabolism. So those are some benchmarks to consider uh, similar to the mold, yeast, mycotoxin that I've presented uh, over the past hour. At this point, I think uh, in the interest of, of time and moving towards the, the question and answer session, I'll skip past uh, some discussion on rumen in situ approaches, uh, some of the discussion on rumen starch degradability, digestion rates. These are some of the ranges that we see in rumen starch disappearance and degradation rates on, on various feeds, TMR, and different feedstuffs. But I guess I'll draw your attention to we see between 20 and uh, upwards of 100% ruminal starch disappearance from combining both in vivo literature and then some work that we've done uh, with seven-hour in-situ digestion estimates and then calculating a digestion rate from that and estimating in vivo starch digestion. So the average being around 60%, then you can just see these wide ranges that we've seen both in published literature and then through our laboratory. I will uh, skip past this. I'll skip past both the uh, discussion on in vitro uh, intestinal crude protein digestion and some discussion on, on TTNDFD, which is a tool that can be used on farm to forecast forage performance. But then get towards wrapping up with hopefully reflecting back on, on just some of the opportunities, maybe uh, bringing some awareness to areas that you haven't considered previously or maybe some tools you haven't considered previously to identify opportunities on farm hopefully keeping in the back of our mind that everything we're, we're talking about here today must have an impact on income over feed cost, on impact on uh, farm profitability and performance, otherwise it, it just really doesn't have any place within your consulting program. And I know that we can manage for better precision. I know, I know that while our laboratory and uh, some of the other really good laboratories out in the field can bring some good things for you Ultimately, it starts on the farm, and so I'm happy to be able to contribute today, hopefully, again, giving you a couple ideas and some things to consider. Uh, a few references that I leaned on today, and then I'll offer my contact information if you'd like to expand on any of the areas that, that I briefly got into today, or, or you'd like to offer feedback, uh, critical is welcomed as well. Here's my email. And, phone number, social media connection as well. With that, I, I'll turn back over to uh, you, Marianne, and Marcelo, and we'll carry on then hopefully with some fantastic question and answer and poll discussion. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That um, certainly didn't feel you needed to cut it short on our behalf. I think everybody enjoys listening. Um, before we get to the question and answer period, I need to attend to a few administrative details. Just want to say that this webinar marks our final edition in the 2015 series. <clears throat> Excuse me. We will not hold webinars in November and December. 
the series will start back up in February 2016. We're presently working on a list of speakers, and we do have affirmation from a couple. Um, Charlie Sniffen and Tom Jenkins have both said that they would be more than glad to be speakers for us. You could look for a complete topic and speaker schedule after the first of the year. If you find that you miss your monthly nutrition talk presentation, you can always find archived recordings at our website, agmodelsystems.com slash ruminations slash webinars. I, at this time, would also like to thank, oh, hold on a second, Marianne's not very clever tonight. I'd like to thank the people who made this possible, Tom Taluki at AMTS, USAN Global, Marcelo Hens Ramos at 3R Lab in Brazil, Paula Torillo in Argentina, our translators at each location, we also want to thank the sponsors of our English language seminar, Ajinomoto Heartland Incorporated, makers of Agipro L, Rumen Protected Lysine, and Virtus Nutrition, manufacturers of Energy 2, Prequil, and Strata. I also want to especially thank our listeners of both the live webinars and the recorded webinars for their attendance this past year. We've been honored to host some of the most noted experts in the field of cattle nutrition and the privilege to deliver the talks to listeners on five continents. Thank, to, thank you to you all. The response has been fantastic. We will start with some questions. After a few, we'll take a break from the audience questions to present the poll results. Marcelo and Paula will translate and moderate questions from Brazil and Argentina. For listeners in the English language webinar, unless you're certain your audio is working properly, we ask that you type your questions in the question and answer window. I will read the question and identify the questioner. So first of all, I want to open up the mics at Mar for Marcelo and Paula to say thank you. And then we'll go Beleza. to the first question. Not that one. Paula, you're unmuted. Marcelo? Mary? Yes. We can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Excellent. John, excellent job. Great, great job. Every day we're learning a lot here. Uh, we have a kind of broad question. I think you can start with this. It's a very important question for all of us participating. Is what gives you confidence uh, to increase the forage in the diet? And maybe you want to talk not only about corn starch, but maybe pasture too, if you could help us. We have these questions a lot. The, 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 the nutritionists and the producers, they want to be confident they could increase forage and not uh, lose milk or maybe increase performance. So there, there are a couple aspects to increasing forage in the diet. And one of the first being forage quality and having the the digestive characteristics in the fiber primarily that allow us to then push the envelope. So as, as a consultant, I've historically looked at forage NDF as a, a benchmark or maybe a limiting factor, being able to push up to a point where we are maybe just shy of gut fill. But the more degradable that that forage NDF is, the faster it is then passed from the rumen, either due to passage or uh, 
conversion into uh, fatty acids, short-chain fatty acids, and absorbed. So I would be looking at uh, fiber digestion. I would be looking at potentially some of the total track tools that we uh, I briefly discussed here today as far as giving us an idea on whether or not we can feed more forage within the diet. But it, it hinges on nutrient digestibility. Marcelo, if you have more questions, you can go right ahead. Yeah, on that, John, I think they're also they're asking for benchmarks or numbers that uh, you could, you know, uh, how much uh, in forage NDS as a percent of body weight or total diet, how much TTNFD, what are the values that you feel comfortable uh, going and not uh, missing anything? Sure. So I guess I'll, I'll talk about both ends of the spectrum. And so an average, uh, and I'll speak of, of just forage NDF, again, uh, an area that I've, I've had comfort longer back in my career, but 19 to maybe 21% forage NDF in the diet as a percent of dry matter. In situations where forage quality is inferior, uh, leaving much to be desired, uh, we can get into 15 to 16% forage NDF. Not exactly where we'd like to be from a physically effective NDF standpoint. Uh, on a formulation standpoint, however, the, the forage is actually quite a bit more rigid, and in, I've had cases where 16 to 17 or 18 percent forage NDF and, and cows are still ruminating uh, quite a bit. Cud chewing is fantastic on farm, despite the fact that there's much less forage NDF. So that that would be one of the lower scenarios where maybe there would be 30, 35 percent forage in the diet. But on the the higher end, feeding and pushing for greater NDF levels, greater forage levels. I could see 25, 26, 27% forage NDF in situations where we have uh, exceptional forage quality, potentially brown midrib mutations in either the corn silage or the, maybe some uh, sorghum or Sudan grasses that have just exceptional fiber digestibility, potentially pasture situations where we have high quality Cool season grasses, exceptional fiber digestibility, exceptional TTNDFD of maybe 48 to 50 or 52 percent, meaning total tract digestibility is well above that 42 percent that I referenced previously. We can push the envelope further to that 25, 26, 27 percent of dry matters for GNDF. Okay, um, Marcelo, I'm going to mute you. I have a question here, and it is from. Um, Alejandro Urbina, if the starch content in your forage is low, less than 25%, are there any consequences of supplementing this deficiency with corn grain? No, there will not be any consequences, and unfortunately that needs to be the uh, formulation strategy in supplementing, bringing in corn grain to make up for that decreased starch content. Ultimately, what we're formulating on uh, historically is starch content, and now more recently, fermentable starch, as, as AMTS does a good job in looking at starch digestibility and looking at fermentable starch load. But we need to bring in that, that starch. We need to bring in that readily digestible carbohydrate to fuel rumen metabolism and fuel performance. Okay, um, I have some questions from Paula, so I'm going to unmute her, I hope. Let's see. 
Okay, Paula is unmuted. Yes, I'm here. Um, thank you very much, Sean, for the presentation. I have two questions uh, from Carlos. The first one is, uh, which is the technique you use to determine starch in corn silage? So just the general starch content? Am I understanding the question correctly? Yes. The, the technique that, that we use at Rockefeller Laboratory has been the one developed by Mary Beth Hall and recently vetted and I believe published uh, in AOAC journal for using a Mary Beth Hall 2014 technique. Okay, perfect. Uh, the second question uh, is when you have silage in bags, is it useful to sample in the face and at the same moment at 30, 45 meters from the side of the bag? Are those data useful? So if I'm understanding the question correctly, we would, we would sample at the face and then we would uh, drill a hole in the bag and, and sample 30, 45 meters further in the bag and then use that information. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. Yes, that, that information I think would be very valuable. Uh, we could either combine that feed into a single sample for analyses or we could submit those as separate and then use the average of those for formulation. I, I think that would be a fantastic strategy. But when doing something like that, keep in mind that uh, when we open a bag, when we penetrate a bag with a drill or, or cut it with a knife, that we're exposing that silage back again to oxygen, which is not a good thing. So take effort to then seal that opening up with uh, a high-quality tape and, and make sure that the oxygen is stopped after taking oh. the sample. Okay, but, but you take just one sample from each, uh, from each place at the side of the bag? Yeah, it's, it's difficult with bags because of the pace. Ideally, we're, we are feeding uh, one to two meters of feed out of a bag each day for silage health and to ensuring that we're feeding fresh feed uh, each day to, to cattle. But with that, there's quite a bit of variability. So I, I, I think there would be a great value in feeding or in making several measurements, if not more, within a maybe 150 to 100, 150 meter bag. Okay, Paula, do you have another question? Uh, not now. Okay. Um, I know Marcelo Thank does. You. Remember, if you're listening in the English language webinar and you want to ask a question, go ahead and type it in the Q&A section or in the chat section. In the meantime, I'll open up Marcelo and he'll have some questions. Thank you. Uh, that's, uh, I think you can help a lot on that, John. If I have fecal starch, 10% uh, fecal starch, 10%, what can I do to decrease it? Considering the corn starch is being made, uh, he's asking about adding water, cannot change the grinding size. So maybe strategies to decrease fecal starch would be a better question. Well, the, the first question I would have would, would be, can we impact the corn grain outside of the corn salad? Can we further grind that grain? 
Beyond then the supplemental corn grain outside of the corn silage, there may be strategies related to, uh, like you suggested, adding water. Potentially, uh, one of the first steps that needs to take place before nutrient digestion is, is solubilization. So cow is going to consume the TMR, and then the TMR gets solubilized within the rumen uh, or during rumination. So that, that process may be sped up. That may help us improve digestion within the rumen uh, pre-wetting feed by maybe 12 hours, but that also does introduce and, and can further yeast growth, so that needs to be balanced, the anti-nutrition versus the nutritional benefit to wetting feed. Uh, I think in cases of extreme fecal starch, uh, we should evaluate further grain processing, potentially the corn silage, maybe a roller or something on farm. Uh, I, I know that's thinking outside the box and, and may not be economically viable. I know that there are some nutritional additives uh, available on the market which have been shown to improve uh, starch utilization. It may be worth considering uh, some, some of those that have peer-reviewed research behind them. Uh, some other considerations would be to review uh, rate of passage. If, for example, that the cows just aren't achieving nutrient metabolism, nutrient digestion like they should be, maybe rate of passage is a little bit faster than it should be. One could consider adding some physically effective NDF to the diet to potentially slow down rate of passage and, and lengthen the rumen retention time and give the rumen microbes more time to degrade the starch. Those would be some things I'd, I'd consider on the front end to, to try and reduce fecal starch lower than 10% with the goal being two. Thank you. Okay, Marcelo, do you have more questions? Yeah, I think that that can be added up here. If I see kernel, corn kernel, in feces, do I have high fecal starch? Not necessarily. So if there's, if you see one or two kernels uh, out of maybe say three or four kilos of, of feces, that could be a relatively small amount of starch relative to the rest of the dry matter in those feces. But seeing a, a corn kernel generally is an indication that there's some opportunity for better starch digestion, metabolism throughout the total tract. So it, you, we can't make the direct relationship, although there's a pretty good indication of better opportunity. Thank you. Okay, I have a question, a follow-up from the previous question from Alejandro Urbina. Could forage starch supplementation with corn grain lead to weight gain instead of milk production. Alejandro is in Costa Rica. Alejandro, that is a fantastic question and one where I'm really intrigued. So there was a dairy actually where I had consulted for, but I lost the business uh, as a consultant a number of years ago where uh, we had a situation very similar and so I'm not afraid to admit that because I, I want to learn and do better for the industry, but the, the cattle gained weight uh, when increasing starch in the diet as we were trying to improve performance. I, uh, there may be, there may be uh, some opportunity as far as where that starch is being digested within the total tract as far as the rumen versus the hindgut. Uh, I would hope that we have a very finely ground or readily digestible corn grain that we're supplementing uh, with the corn silage. However, if it's a, a whole or a shelled corn or a cracked corn that is really not going to be digested within the rumen, but it's potentially digested in the small intestine and the lower GIT, uh, 
that possibly could be diverted more towards weight gain than uh, milk production. But I, I, I need to learn more there. Uh, that's an area I'm intrigued by as far as energy partitioning. Okay. Um, at this point, I think we're ready for our poll discussion. And I just brought up the um, results from the polls based on the English language, the Brazilian, and the Argentinian. Um, and Marcelo will lead the discussion with Dr. Gazer. Well, John, I think well, when we thought about those questions, I didn't, I didn't know we would have uh, people that would believe that they would have 100 tones. And we have 30, 35% of the Brazilians, which we do have a, like a worldwide problem trying to store feed. So yeah, we need to work on that so they, they understand that we're losing more than that. And we don't have any, I don't know, which is, which is good, but uh, yeah, make your, your comments there. So I, again, I see this in the field when we see uh, discoloration in feed, when we see mold and yeast. That is all that that signifies nutrient losses. That signifies dry matter losses. And so, as I've poured over the literature, as I, I worked hard on the meta analyses, and then came with a little bit more concrete estimate of fermentation losses, dry matter losses, fermentation shrink. The best we can do, I think, would be greater than this 95 ton. I think 98 ton is, is where the best we can be. Unfortunately, when looking at the data, uh, there, there's too many situations where we have maybe 90 ton or 85 ton fed out for every 100 harvested. Uh, but in, in no circumstances do we ever feed out 100 ton. There are some farms that weigh in every bit of feed uh, harvested and then weigh it back out of the silo. And I, I've actually had one uh, owner of a dairy that uh, he, he's got three, 4,000 cows now, and, and he was steadfast in telling me that, that he had zero shrink and he had even had positive shrink as far as using TMR software uh, to measure feed in and out. But his measurements, uh, he ha clearly had moisture errors in, in some of his calculations because there, there's just no situations where we feed out 100 out of every 100 harvested. And in, 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 in that's a point when I think, you know, the, I don't know your opinion on that, but the inoculants, the people, they have a hard time showing the farmers that they, they have a, a big benefit of uh, inoculants, maybe, you know, uh, other things that you could do, but I, I'm a big believer of inoculants, at least for corn silage and grass. Yeah, there's quite a bit of literature demonstrating an improvement in fermentation efficiency, maybe saving another two or three units of, of sugar. Uh, dry matter can be effectively converted to lactic acid, and which substantially decreases pH and can preserve feed. So there can be an ideal situation where there is complete conservation of, of energy, but that, that never happens in the real world. Uh, anytime we have acetic acid produced, there is uh, a carbon or two lost, which corresponds to dry matter losses. If we have butyric acid produced, that corresponds to uh, carbon dioxide as well as protein uh, degradation and, and extended uh, silage losses. And so you're right, the, the, some of the inoculant and uh, forage preservative manufacturers have, have done a decent job, I think, in, in utilizing some of our subjective tools in fermentation analyses, uh, maybe mold and yeast counts to paint a subjective picture of what might be happening in the silo, but hopefully we're moving in a bit more concrete, more objective fashion by now offering uh, and applying that, that meta-analysis equation 
to, to be able to put dollars and cents to preservation opportunities. Yep. Okay. So that we can Great. make decisions. So. Um, discussion of the next um, poll. Go ahead. Okay. If this okay. Uh, well, about twenty percent of the Brazilian believe the production will be the same. But I like I like that poll. I think you left your message, John, that uh, you know NDF and starch mainly. Now, of course, other nutrients too, the digestibility of those. I think the three counters have a pretty good understanding that they will make a difference and not uh, with the production. I don't believe it will be the same. Yeah, I'll echo that, I guess, one more time. And so I get a bit repetitive with that, but uh, people smarter than myself, such as Tom and, and others, have just, we've, we've continued to discuss the carbohydrates, the fiber, and the starch. Obviously, I'm quite biased, having done my work with Professor Combs at the University of Wisconsin, uh, doing some work behind some of his total track NDFD estimates, uh, doing some more work recently on the starch metabolism, starch digestion. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of opportunity here in, in starch and fiber digestion characteristics, just out beyond, well beyond just how much fiber and starch are, are inherent in the feed, but the digestibility will have a, a massive impact and uh, frankly that's one aspect of AMTS that I really appreciate is being able to reflect and, and forecast some of the impact that the different degradability coefficients, the different digestion rates will uh, have not only on predicted performance but also on uh, metabolizable protein, microbial protein and, and being able to see that within uh, formulation. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Um, poll three. I still don't see it yet. Where is it? Yeah. I see third kilo of corn. Yeah, uh, we, we you know that it's. I I think one of the things that I mentioned, you were very clear in your presentation, of change the dry matter, it will impact a lot. So it does has a it is a big deal on on the dry matter. Yeah, I will agree again. So there's been research evaluating if changes in dry matter will impact animal performance with some somewhat surprising results. So, so Dave Mertens, again, had done some work, and I think there's been a couple other groups that have seen not as much impact maybe as they expected going into the experiment in changing the forage dry matter. Uh, however, the animals still continued to eat feed. So even in the event, though, that, that performance doesn't necessarily change, uh, provided that animals have enough feed to consume, there, there will be resulting impacts on profitability because the ratios, again, of the purchase feed to forage might not be as formulated. And so we need to do a, a continually better job in, on assessing dry matter, at least on a weekly basis, if not more frequently. Especially... Uh, when we have those silos that reduce 15, 20 percent, that a lot of them, a lot of them, they do not have the right uh, compactation that they need. 700 kilos of uh, wet matter for a cubic meter or whatever is the goal. I, I think I don't know your experience, but the dry matter is going to fluctuate more than a very compacted silo. Yeah, I guess I, I wouldn't offer educated uh, comments there. I, I just, I don't have any data to support either way. Okay, and then this is our final poll. 
Well, that's what we see a lot on the farm, but I like that. Nutrients, especially forbs, and I think that's why uh, you show a data there that most of the, the samples that go to the lab are forbs and still not uh, a lot of that is concentrated, but it's going to vary a lot, but the concentrate is also going to have a big impact. But it still have some people that believe that we need to select better bulls and the cows must be sick. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But truthfully, I think it can be any of these. So, admittedly, I, I selected the we need better bulls because I agreed with Marianne that, that this was one of my favorite questions I've come up against. But when feeding and, and trying to identify why performance isn't as expected, I, I, there's I've seen many situations where the crew, the farm crew, is is not feeding as prescribed. It, it may not be they might not be doing it purposefully, but there may be errors in some of their weighing equipment where the, the load scale or the scales and the load cells are broken on farm, or maybe they're not weighing feed in when things are on a level surface. So, so that could be something where the farm crew isn't even at fault, but the diet is not being put together correctly, just on a weight basis. Uh, the, there's been a, a few groups that have looked at in depth how TMRs are, are then actually being mixed within the, the variety of mixers, horizontals and vertical. So that could certainly be an area to look at as to why performance is not as expected. Uh, the nutrients obviously uh, could be different from what, what is within software. So we didn't get into some of the variants we've seen from feed library based values, but I wrote a couple of popular press articles evaluating differences in protein and NDF on feeds such as crude, uh, I'm sorry, soy hulls even uh, soybean meal and canola, there can be substantially different crude protein content or, or fiber content even more so. I guess I'll reference Bill Weiss commented in a couple of his papers that some of the variances he's seen in just NDF on some of our major uh, purchase feeds are, are enough, the variance is enough to affect animal health, which then relates back to answer A, they must be sick. That, that certainly could be the case as well if, if either the, the formulated ration wasn't presented as as such or there was something anti-nutritional going on, but I think uh, the selection of better bowls, I, I hope that's not the case. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that finishes our poll discussion. Um, we'll go back to a few questions. I know that Paula has one, so um, Marcelo, I'm going to mute you. Do um, type in and let me know if you have any more questions, and then we'll go to a question from Paula. I'm having trouble unmuting Paula tonight. I don't know why, but there, we got her. Hi, thank you. Uh, going back to fecal starch content, which are the benchmarks you use or you have uh, for feedlot cattle? Good question. So actually, I, I, I'm speaking of dairy cattle when I say less than 2%, and, and I guess I didn't acknowledge that. For feedlot cattle, I, I don't think we can expect the same benchmarks. Uh, in fact, we've recently implemented a, a fecal search total track digestibility prediction specific to feedlot cattle from Fred Owens, I believe, and, and maybe some others that he published in Animal Science uh, a number of years ago. But it's, uh, I, I want to say uh, six or eight percent fecal starch maybe would be a, a better goal for feedlot cattle. However, I, I need to get back into the, the literature and, and maybe reference our own database as to 
feedlot samples or feedlot feces submitted as to see what might be a little bit more realistic. So unfortunately, I don't have a, a quick answer for you. I apologize. Okay. Uh, Paula, do you have another okay. one? Uh, not now. Thank you very much. Okay. Marcelo does have some more questions, so I'll unmute him. John, another one, a good one for you here. If you are consulting for a farm and you consistently have uh, high fecal starch, pick up a number, like maybe 5%, 7%, 6%, do you consider increasing the starch in the diet? Yeah, that, that could be a good way to approach it. So ultimately cows have fermentable carbohydrate requirements and, and those must be met with a, a quantity of fermentable carbohydrate, not necessarily a ratio. So we, we look in terms of fermentable starch as maybe a percent of dry matter, but uh, there's also a, there's a kilo amount that we need to then ultimately drive uh, energy to drive a certain kilo production of milk. So if we were not getting the percentage of starch digested, we should be. One, one way to get around that might be to just feed more corn grain. It's not ideal. I think a better situation would be to improve our starch digestibility so that we could then, uh, I guess, parlay the starch digestion off into better fiber digestion and, and maybe protein metabolism because they're all tied together in synergy within the rumen. But uh, if, if we can't improve starch digestibility at all, we, we may just be forced to feed more starch and potentially feed less uh, forage or less fiber. Okay, thank you. Okay, and Marcelo, did you have a second question? That, that, uh, well, we started to have more of that. Uh, the question is, if I have really good forage quality, could you have problems with uh, subclinical acidosis? So th this question comes up from time to time, and, and I, there was some experience in the United States when we started to feed brown midrib corn silage without adjusting the, the ration much at all, and, and I wasn't consulting at that point, but I know there's been cases where we did get into acidosis where we kept starch levels the same, but when I think about how cows uh, and ruminants evolved, it was eating, uh, in some cases, very high-quality grass on pasture, and so I, I don't ever think there can be a situation where we have too high of forage quality. Rather, as consultants and nutritionists, we need to then back off on from uh, highly fermentable carbohydrate in the form of starch or sugar, uh, corn grain, wheat, uh, things like that, and, and just feed more forage when the, the forage quality and the fiber digestibility improves. Ultimately, fiber digestibility will never, almost never equate to the same as starch or sugar digestibility. So we just need to then feed more forage and less grain. Thank you. Okay. Um, I think that we may be out of questions. I'm going to open up Paula's mic and see if she has any. Maybe I'm going to open up Paula's mic. Interesting. And I think Marcelo is done with questions. Yes, um, I'm, I'm done here. Yep, and I there. Mar Paula is unmuted. I think that yes. we'll have we have all of our our multi language hosts open. We really want to thank you, Dr. Gazer, for your um, tour de force here. Um, I think we have some great questions, and you were certainly very game to to participate, and it went off very well. Um, I'm sure Paula and Marcelo both want to thank you. 
Yes, thank you very much, Sean. It was a, a great presentation for us. I think uh, everybody enjoyed it here. So, uh, thank you very much. Appreciate Excellent job, excellent. We're going to keep that, that we have records as uh, Mary and Paula. We use that for training of people all over the world going to see and watch. And we'd like to thank you so much for having a, a time to discuss uh, this uh, new thing to from the lab uh, with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, and, and thank, thank you for your participation. And um, I think every all of us that have done this want to go and, and raise a glass and say thank you so much. It's been a great, great year doing this, and we look forward to 2016. Again, All I right. very much appreciate the opportunity to contribute. Thank you, Marianne, for organizing. Thank you. And we'll say good night. Good night, everybody. See you in February. Bueno, cerramos nosotros ahora este ciclo. Espero que hayan disfrutado de esta presentación.